0: whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to this bonus episode of She Said, She Said podcast. As I work on a new season of the podcast, I have been taking a break from recording over the past few weeks, and I'm actually sharing a few repackaged past episodes, just a few, but ones that really resonated with listeners and that generated so much great feedback. I'm always so grateful for all the feedback. This week, we're talking about transferable skills and how to string your experiences and your skills together to create the perfect pitch for yourself. Now, friend, have you ever struggled to make your particular skills and experiences fit into a neatly packaged job description? Or maybe to fit an opportunity that you think is right for you even though your experiences may actually fall outside the scope of what's included in that position description. Now I'm putting air quotes around the word required. The trick here is learning to take what you know and actually repurposing it. Doing this and doing this well can provide real differentiation between you and other potential candidates for a position but it takes some careful thought and real preparation to make those experiences relevant. Now, to guide us through this topic today, I actually pulled from an episode that I recorded back in 2021 with the fabulous Jodi Glickman. Jodi is the founder of a company called Great on the Job. And Great on the Job is also the title of her terrific book, which I highly recommend. In addition to Jodi's consulting business, she is also a leading educator on LinkedIn. Now, friend, as an aside, if you don't currently take advantage of those free LinkedIn courses, I highly recommend them. They can give you a great way to boost your insights as well as your skills. Now back to Jodi. Jodi is not only an expert at helping individuals think about how to package their skills for the positions that they want, she's also particularly adept at thinking through how to use elements of your personal story to make yourself more memorable and interesting at cocktail parties and networking events. Friend, these are skills, and while they may come more naturally to some people, they are still learnable skills that we can improve with preparation and practice. Thinking about transferable skills and your perfect pitch is part of storytelling for sure. The story you craft about your experiences that you tell others, and the stories that you tell yourself about your abilities. Doing this effectively and impactfully means that we have to channel whatever self-doubt that we may be feeling and ultimately recasting it. This can be especially true if you're trying to explain a gap on your resume, for example. Maybe you took a few years off to raise kids or to care for an ailing relative. How do you describe the experience that you gained in the process in a way that might be beneficial to a potential employer. It takes some work. Jody and I cover all of this in this episode and much more. Now you'll find complete show notes as well as a full transcript for this episode on my website at She Said, She Said podcast.com. And remember, those show notes also include some great additional takeaways from the episode. So be sure that you don't miss those for now. Here is bonus episode 206 with Jody Glickman. Friend, please be sure to let me know what you think of the episode and how you think about your own transferable skills and innovative ways that you've made your skills and experiences relevant for positions, especially when they fall outside of the stated job description. I'd really, really love to hear. Jodi, welcome to She Said She Said. Thank you so
1: much, Laura. It's so nice to be here with you today.
0: Well, I'm delighted to have you. I I know I told you I ran across your LinkedIn course on Developing the Perfect Pitch back several months ago, and I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to have Jodi on She Said, She Said. So I'm delighted that we have made this happen today. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I'd love for you to start by talking about Great on the Job, which is the name of your company and also the name of your book. How did Great on the Job start? Um, In a very
1: funny sort of way. I was an investment banker on Wall Street. I was working at Goldman Sachs and I was working around the clock 24 seven. And I wasn't a very sort of nice person at that point in my life because I was stressed and I was tired and I was overworked. Um, and I was dating my now husband. And he said to me at some point, he said, you know, you should really teach people how to communicate." And I said, you're crazy. This is just how I talk. I don't know how to teach people how to communicate. And he said, no, really, Jody. I listen to you when you're on conference calls and in meetings and you're so good. You're so strategic. You're so persuasive. You're really compelling. You get to the point immediately. I go around and around and I don't know how to ask a question or answer a question. And so he planted the seed and I I kind of laughed at him. Um, But he persisted. And over the course of I don't know how many months, he kept coming back to this idea. And at one point, he sat down and he wrote a business plan. And he sent it to me while I was on a business trip abroad. And I remember coming home in a, a red eye and reading this business plan and thinking, oh, my God, like maybe he's right. Maybe I should do this. And so he really kind of twisted my arm into starting the business. I was very resistant Um, But we ultimately he came up with this idea that we would kind of reverse engineer the way that I communicated because I didn't really have the ear for the methods or the strategies. It just came naturally to me. But he was able to break them down and recognize, like, for instance, when I got off the phone, he said to me one day, well, how do you end a conversation? And I said, it's thank you and it's forward momentum. Like, thank you so much. I look forward to staying in touch or thank you. So much, right. I'll shoot you an email tomorrow with follow up. And he said, I didn't know that. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, thank you and forward momentum. Now you know. And it was those kinds of conversations that got us thinking, you know, him specifically. And then he brought me on board. And so we put together a little sort of mini um, proposal for a book. And we went to a literary agent in New York City and she said, very interesting concept, I love it, but like, who are you? You're an investment banker, you have no credibility, you have no experience with this. And so I thought, okay, maybe I should start a business and start teaching this and see if I can get some credibility.
0: That's so interesting. So you actually started, you you had written the book before you started the business. Yes.
1: Or, yeah, the book less. was basically sort of in the, it was being ideated before the business started. Yes, and then it turned into a business and then ultimately became a book. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But I was not a I was not one of those people who couldn't wait to be an entrepreneur, who had this idea burning inside of me that said I have to do this. I was someone who was kind of dragged along for the ride and very reluctantly said, "Okay, maybe I'll see if this has legs." And now I love what I do. I'm I'm so passionate about it. I think I'm pretty darn good at it. But it wasn't that sort of typical story of, I want to be an entrepreneur. I kind of liked being in corporate America and getting a big paycheck
0: and having an assistant. So, Jody, how how did you know how to do this? I mean, you had some natural, either yeah. natural skills you were raised right. with maybe the ability uh, or instruction on how to communicate directly were you in a military family right. like how did how did that how did you develop that natural you skill? know it's a
1: great question and I've never quite been sure of the answer my husband's hypothesis and again he's the one with much more awareness my my mom is a very social woman she like has more friends than anyone can count and my dad was a very kind of terse New Yorker who got right to the point and you know, didn't mm-hmm. suffer fools lightly. And so my, my husband thinks it was this combination of like being really social, but getting to the point quickly. I would say that I assumed, here's what I think is so interesting about business and careers, is that when you're growing up, what comes naturally and easy to you, you assume comes naturally and easy to others. So I didn't necessarily realize that my communication skills were an asset. I assumed everyone knew how to walk into their boss's office, ask a question, get the information and leave, or really diplomatically give someone senior to them feedback in a way that wasn't offensive. And it turns out now I have certainly come to the realization that that is not Intuitive and innate to most people. That happens to be my superpower. For whatever reason, I'm not very good at merger math and valuation models and LBOs. Right. So everyone's got their <laughs> gifts. But I didn't have an awareness around it, and still, I until I started putting some focus and emphasis, and now I reverse engineer everything I do. So I'll have a conversation, and something will come to me, and I'll say, "Oh, well, that's the way you do it." I hadn't really thought about it, but I didn't study it, and I don't have a great reason for why or how, I just sort of feel like that is my gift. And I, I found a way to leverage it and um, and share it with people because it, it really can be life-changing for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. It's such an interesting story. And knowing, as I already know, the audience does not, but I do, knowing about your career journey, I find that even <laughs> more interesting. So <laughs> I'd love to dig into, maybe if we back the truck yeah. up a bit and talk about, your your journey it, it was not a linear path as we oftentimes find on this podcast when we talk to people yeah. the path to where they ultimately end up is a winding winding path and journey so maybe talk a little bit about how you how you got started in your career and maybe some of the interesting less interesting junction. Absolutely.
1: And I'll start with the fact that for those of you who are listening and are young, you know, I almost there are very few careers which are linear today. And I think there's not a ton of value in chasing a linear career path. You're not supposed to know at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old what you want to be, and who you want to be, and who you are going to become, and I think there is so much pressure to have it figured out so early, and I think it really backfires. So I I spoke on the TED stage on um, my TEDx speech was stop working, stop searching for work you love, and I really think there is a lot of pressure on us to find that you know career we love. And I spent the first decade of my career doing really fun and interesting things, but feeling a little bit like a failure because I didn't excel necessarily in any of them. And I didn't love them in a way that was sustainable. So I actually started my career as a Peace Corps volunteer in Latin America in a little tiny town called Curarewe in Southern Chile. We had one phone and one road. And I had an amazing, amazing experience. I learned way more than I, I I sort of gained way more than I gave. Um, But I came home from the Peace Corps and I thought I wanted to work in international development but I also wanted to live in the United States. I decided I did not want to spend my whole life traveling abroad. And, and so I was kind of lost. Um, I wound up going to work for the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington, D.C., and thinking I was going to love it. And I got there and I started working for the government. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the bureaucracy, you know, it moves at a snail's pace. And I'm really I'm a fast talker and a fast thinker. And I move quickly. And I just thought this is not for me. And so I applied to business school. And so I went to business school having been in the Peace Corps and working for the EPA, never have working, never having worked in the private sector. And I loved business school. Business school sort of opened up my brain in the same way that the Peace Corps did. just blew my mind. I loved business school. And so from there, I became an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, which was like, people looked at me like I was crazy, right? Who goes from who goes from the Peace Corps to Goldman Sachs? I also wound up doing an internship at Exxon Mobil. So I had EPA and Exxon Mobile, Peace Corps and Goldman, and people just used to look at me like I was crazy, right? Like there was nothing made sense. But I was really open to different experiences. People sort of said to me, well, how can you go from the EPA, right, that regulates our, you know, pollution and keeps America's, you know, companies from from being, you know, Keeps them as good corporate citizens and then go work for Exxon Mobil, like the biggest oil energy producer. And I said, well, I drive a car and I use electricity and I want to see the industry from the other side. So I always felt very I was okay with sort of the the haters or the criticism or the people who said you were in the Peace Corps. Now you're going to go work for Goldman Sachs. Like what a sellout. I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as learning and exploring and growing and really wanting to be in the private sector and get stuff done. I was frustrated by government. Um, but but it turns out after four years on Wall Street, I realized, I knew pretty early on Wall Street that that wasn't for me. I was not a great investment banker. But here I was at, you know, I don't know, 32, 33 years old. And I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. I've done public sector. I've done private sector. I've done corporate. I've done Wall Street. And nothing sticks. So I really was at a low point in while I was sort of figuring this out. I left Wall Street, went to a nonprofit, an amazing nonprofit in New York City that I love. But I literally day one, Laura, I got there and I thought, oh, my gosh, what did I do? I I cannot work a nonprofit. Again, that sort of pace and that bureaucracy and that impact. I just was so impatient. And that was when around that time, my husband said, I think you should teach people how to communicate. And so I pivoted and became an entrepreneur. And the story I told myself was, I'll give it a year or two. And if it doesn't work, I'll do something else. I felt like I had to give myself an out because I was not convinced I was I would be successful. I really wasn't. Um, but I felt like, okay, I can take a chance. I was young. I didn't have children. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I really do think that there's so much pressure on people to feel like you have to have it figured out right away. And that's so unrealistic. You know, go with all the twists and turns, take a risk, take a new challenge. You learn so much about what you're good at and what you're not, what you enjoy, what you don't, don't enjoy, what brings you energy, what drains your energy. Those are the things to pay attention to.
0: Yeah. Do you do you think you were raised with this mindset of really looking at each opportunity as a chance to to learn? Where do you think that skill came yeah, from? Yeah, I you? think
1: my parents were I think my parents my dad used to say to me, "You're so effing strategic," and he would swear. He would um he would just <laughs> say, "Your brain is so you're you're always thinking big picture and you're so strategic." But but they were really very supportive of you know the world is your oyster. You can be anything you want to be. Take opportunities. So they certainly made me feel um, empowered. I also, to be fair, I came from a very privileged background in that I had access and opportunity. I went to Northwestern University. I took out student loans to fund it, but I never felt like I always felt like I could do things. Um, I did an internship at the White House and. And that I read about it in Newsweek magazine that President Clinton had just taken office and he needed interns. And I wrote like this little thing that I saw, but um, but it but it wasn't paid. And I remember someone saying Mm -hmm. to me at 19 years old, you know, how are you affording to spend the summer at the White House when you're not getting paid? And I thought, oh, you know, like my parents are helping me and I have another job. Um, so I always felt like opportunity was I never felt for lack of opportunity, that's for sure. I felt I felt very empowered to do different things and to take risks. And I just felt I felt frustrated that I couldn't find my thing. That was really it. Like so many people I saw, you know, becoming successful in their careers. And I was just kind of junior on Wall Street or junior in this organization. And I really wanted to have impact. That was what was frustrating to me.
0: Yeah, why do you think that frustration didn't affect your confidence? Because it obviously didn't. You kept striving and trying different things and pursuing different things, but a lot of times when you bump up against that roadblock and you keep, you know, you keep hitting things that that don't work, it can really it can really um do a do a number on your confidence. How, why did that not affect you, do you think? It's a good question. I think um
1: my my i have 3 children they're 14 12 and 8 and my 14 year old thinks i'm for lack of a better word she thinks i'm sort of cocky and i i am <laughs> in my professional life i am so confident i don't i have to, i wonder where that comes from i think again my dad and my brother were very sarcastic they would mm-hmm. um they would tease me a lot but but also very complimentary and so it was I sort of never doubted my own self-worth. I never doubted my intelligence. In fact, the arrogance, I remember friends applying to business or friends in business school when I was in the public sector and they were getting jobs for the first time and they were getting these offers for like $100,000 and I was making $27,000 at the Environmental Protection Agency. And I remember thinking, I'm smarter than them. Why am I making $27,000? Um I, have to, I, I guess there's some digging as to where that confidence comes. I think it is from my upbringing. I think it was from a family that was was able, didn't always, didn't sort of make it easy on me. You know, was it was, um, you were expected to have ideas and opinions. You were often teased, but in a way that was kind of loving, like we do this because we know you're smart and we know you can handle it. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think about that with my own children, instilling in them a sense of confidence. You know, asking questions, being silly, pushing back, but not coddling in a way. I don't know. I think when people tell you you're fabulous, like you have to, you have to figure it out for yourself. I think.
0: Yeah. No, I I think what you said really resonates with me. So do you had you Eight, had a no, brother? Yeah, one one brother, one older brother,
1: and a dad who were sort of relentless in their. It, it doesn't play well today in 2021, but, you know, it would make fun of me for being a girl sometimes, but, all, yeah, but always yeah. very much with love. Like it was just that was the way our, our family was.
0: Yeah. And they and they probably taught you to be a little yes. tougher than you might have been yeah. otherwise. I mean, I feel the same way. I didn't grow up with siblings, but I think my parents were acutely aware of the need to help a child understand that they were loved unconditionally, but at the same time, like the road wasn't going to be easy and there were people who were going to tease you and mess with you and that you had to be able to, to take up for yourself. Yeah. And that that can really help a kid develop. Yes. confidence. And I also think there was
1: also very much a sense of the world is not fair. My dad was very mm-hmm. focused on his his mom had passed, his dad passed away when he was young and he had to leave college and go home and work and take care of his mom. And when I was going to college, my parents ran into some real financial trouble and I couldn't go to the university I wanted to go to. And then I had to take out student loans. But he always used to say like, it's not the circumstances, it's you, right? You do whatever you can with the circumstances. You make the best of it. You're smart. You'll You'll do whatever you want to do, irrespective of of, you know, other people. I also remember when I was younger, people would get rewarded for good grades and I and at one point I said to my parents like, "Well, how come I don't get rewarded for good grades?" and they looked at me and they said, "You don't get good grades for us. You get good grades for you." You don't get rewarded for being motivated on your own. Like, don't pretend that you're doing this to please us. You're doing this because you care and because you're driven and you're motivated. And that stuck with me. They were right. I wasn't doing it for external. And I try and instill that in my children now, right? It's not for anyone else. You're doing it because you love.
0: I think I just always loved learning. Yeah. So I'd love to, to pivot a yeah. bit and talk about the book that you wrote okay. that sort of preceded the creation of your company. Yeah. It's called Great on the Job, as is the company. Yeah. And in the book, you, you talk about four key areas and they form an acronym, which is kind of like your methodology yeah. for lack of a better yeah. term. Maybe talk a little bit about that, that core acronym and why those pieces were so important. Sure. So I, believe and teach
1: and preach that your overarching goal in your career and in business is to make people love you in a totally professional, platonic, work appropriate, no one getting sued kind of way. So don't, you know, call into Laura. <laughs>
0: I'm glad you said that. <laughs> um,
1: but but I really do believe for those of us who've ever worked for a boss we loved versus a jerk, we do better work for a boss we love. And so, by the transitive property, if we become that colleague who is loved, who is trusted, respected, and admired, people will go through the wall for us. They will want to work with and for us. And the way that you make people love you is through something I refer to as gift the gift of great on the job, which stands for generosity, initiative, forward momentum, and transparency. And to go back to sort of the origin story, as I was building out the great on the job content and curriculum, and we thought about the pieces that were really core to the way that I communicate and core to what I think is important in the workplace, those were the four key themes that kept coming up over and over and that are kind of universal. And generosity is not usually what comes to top of mind when people think about what it takes to be successful at work. Oh, but I do believe mm-hmm. there is a, a huge um, amount of generosity in the workplace and for leaders in particular, a huge importance to be generous with people who you lead by sharing your time and your energy and your resources, by sharing credit and giving people props for a job well done, by taking the time to invest in your teams and give them feedback so that they can get better. And and the way that I sort of break down generosity at its core is it's about making other people's lives better or easier that's really your job, right? Your job, Laura, today as the host is to make it easy for me to come on and engage with you and have a wonderful conversation. My job as an entrepreneur is to make my client's life better or easier when they want to work with us. And and if you're in corporate America, your job is really to make your boss's life better or easier. So I think of it as a virtuous cycle. Um, so that's generosity. I'll pause there and we can talk about the others.
0: I love this idea of generosity and it also underscores something that you said a moment ago that you think about this whole equation very strategically. Right. It's a very strategic look at generosity and adding value and thinking about your how you package your value and how you deliver that, whether it's a client or you're applying for promotion or whatever that is. So maybe go through quickly yeah. the other elements of the acronym and then I want to get into crafting the perfect. Sure, absolutely.
1: So the next so it's
0: generosity is really the core, the basis of everything.
1: And and then it goes to initiative forward momentum and transparency. An initiative is the idea that, you know, opportunities are not going to come to you on a silver platter. No one cares more about managing your career than you do, and they never will. Over the course of the the entirety of your career, no one is going to be more invested in you developing skills, finding ways to add value, to contribute, to grow, to learn than you will. And so it's your responsibility And oftentimes we think that, you know, the hard part is getting into university. The hard part is getting the job. The hard part is getting the raise or the promotion. And the truth is, That's just the very beginning. Once you're there, then it is your responsibility to continue raising your hand, asking for opportunities, pushing the ball forward, thinking about the future and how you can continue to grow and help others and build culture and build organizations. So that's really the initiative and forward momentum piece. And then transparency comes in in that transparency builds trust if you are a leader who is transparent with your team, or if you are a junior person who is transparent with your boss, when a problem arises, you are going to be looked upon favorably. Jamie Dimon, uh, CEO of JP Morgan Chase says, problems don't age well. And I love that because, (laughs) right? Like, you know, if you're, we're so afraid of bad news. And yet the only way you can get through bad news is by being transparent. If you screw up, you need to go to your boss immediately and say, listen, there's a problem. Here's what happened. Here's how I'm fixing it. You can't hide behind that problem. If you don't know the answer to a question and someone you know calls you on the phone or steps by your office, I always say the strategy is here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's how I'll figure it out. Boom, boom, boom. That's how you can be transparent, take initiative, and focus on solving the problem. So I think taken together, for me, I use the gift of great on the job to really handle every business challenge that comes my way. I'll ask myself, okay, what do I need to do here to be generous? What do I need to do here to move the ball forward? Or how can I be transparent and manage this problem so that it doesn't grow out of control? So those sort of four key characteristics really underscore everything that I talk about and and I teach as it relates to everything communication skills related.
0: I love that. Let's talk about this idea of... Pitching yourself, I think, can be a bit elusive to an awful lot of people, whether you're trying to package a product or a podcast, in my case, or whether you're packaging yourself for a promotion, or as the case may be right now, with so many people disrupted as a result of COVID, either because they've lost their jobs, or so many women, men too, but but primarily women, have left the workforce because they have to take a step back in order to care for their yeah. children who are either being homeschooled or you know don't have daycare, all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of disruption from a career standpoint, a lot of people maybe making career pivots this idea of developing the perfect pitch is something that you are an expert on let's talk about why sort of how to develop the perfect pitch but also why is it so elusive to so many people why is it why is it so hard um
1: You know, I think it's like with anything, it's almost, you know, the cobbler son has no shoes, that analogy that we can talk about other people's opportunities, other people's business, we can praise our friends and talk about how great they are. It's harder, especially for women. We have a very hard time self-promoting. We're very good at promoting people in our network. We're not as good as promoting ourselves. So part of it is this challenge of Um, I think looking inward is always more challenging than doing something for other people. I think the other thing about pitching is there's a lot of conflicting advice about out there. There's a lot of, okay, you've got 30 seconds or 60 seconds or 90 seconds and you've got to, you know, hook your listener in and you've got to talk about who you are and what you do and why I should care. It's a really heady um a challenge to come up with a way to pitch yourself in a in a short way that is compelling and memorable. and so i I really I do think it's hard. I really do. I think that it's not terribly surprising to, to me that people struggle with it. And I you know, true confession, I don't think I'm great at pitching myself necessarily in a way you know, you can look around and say there are people who are way more savvy and and way better marketers. But the pitch content that Again, I I don't really the the way it was developed over time was just with some iteration. But as you mentioned, you you found me through this course on LinkedIn Learning, which I think has over two and a half million views at this point. It has it's, it's yeah, it has been amazing. It really does resonate with people, and the reason I think it resonates is that it is so. I think the word is elegant. I I remember reading a definition of elegant as something that like makes sense and is really short and easy to the point because it really is a very simple formula. Let me start by saying that most people start by introducing themselves by looking backwards. We tell you where we came from, where we studied, where we've been working and what we've been doing. And what I say is with all due respect, no one really cares. No one really cares where you went to school or that you've worked at J&J for 10 years or that you studied abroad in Europe. Like, It's not that interesting. What people really care about is what you're doing now and what you're excited about going forward, what you're planning to do in the future, what energizes you, what excites you, what challenges you. And so the idea of perfecting your pitch is kind of flipping the pitch on its head and leading with your destination, leading by looking forward, not by looking backward. And that's where most people fall flat is that they actually don't know where they want to go and what they want to do and who they want to be. And so they go back to their comfort zone of, well, I can talk about what I've done because it's a lot easier than talking about what I want to do or who I want to be. And so my strategy, the great on the job strategy, is that you lead with your destination. Then you go to your backstory and then you connect the dots and bring it all together for me. And what that does is it gives people, I think, a formula that they can sort of hang their hat on. But it's not a script. It doesn't mean you have to memorize something. It's not five questions you have to answer. It's three pieces. It's what's your destination? And then what's your backstory that really relates to that destination? What pieces of your background do you want to highlight in your pitch that are relevant? And then how do you bring it all together? And so we can, if you want, you know, talk about some examples. But I think that it really is this reframing of an idea, which is you have to start by telling people who you are, what you care about, what you're excited about to hook them in. And then you can tell them about what you've done and all the places you've been.
0: Yeah. I've heard you say that just because you develop that pitch that works for this particular purpose, it's not necessarily going to work for every other. It's not a one size fits all kind of situation, Right. right? So talk about the differences and maybe how you advise people to modify their pitch? Like what would be the reasons why you would need a different different pitch? Absolutely. And so what I'll
1: say is the strategy is universal, but the pitch is customized. You always want to lead with your destination, then go to your backstory, then connect the dots. But you could be talking to someone within your company and you're interested in a promotion and your pitch would be very different if you were at an industry event and you were looking to join a nonprofit board or a trade association Or your pitch might be different if you're interviewing for jobs and you're talking to a brand management um, position and you're talking to a data analytics position and you're talking to a marketing position. Then you've got to switch up your pitch so that you can speak to data analytics versus marketing versus brand management. In my case, when I was interviewing for roles in business school, I was looking at consulting and I was looking at investment banking. And when I talked about investment banking, I talked about my natural ability as a big picture thinker that I live sort of at high level, 30,000 feet, but that I was now trained technically with my finance and accounting skills. And I loved finance and accounting. So I'm a big picture thinker by nature and I'm a numbers person by training. That was my pitch for investment banking. For management consulting, I talked about the fact that I was able to problem solve in non-traditional environments, that I had worked in the peace corps, right, that what I loved doing was problem solving in non-traditional environments and then using my sort of analytical and communication skills to really hone my problem solving skills. But those were very different pitches. And so for consulting, I talked more about the Peace Corps and problem solving in the Peace Corps. And when I was interviewing at Goldman Sachs, I didn't really go into the Peace Corps backstory at all. I went into the backstory of what I had done the summer before at ExxonMobil. Yeah. So the idea is you have to decide what is going to resonate with your audience. What are they going to be interested in? And the hardest part of your pitch is really figuring out what is your destination for a specific audience or for a particular role, and then picking the pieces of your backstory that go in tandem with that destination.
0: Yeah. So talk about the role of story itself. Like, How do you go about bringing in the actual stories, when do you bring those pieces in? How do you know how much of that to use? Give your advice on sort of how you, how you bring the pitch to life. You
1: know, what I always say is a couple of things. One, the pitch is a dialogue. It's not a monologue. And that's really important. You don't want to just walk up to someone and say, hi, Laura, I'm Jody Glickman. I'm the founder and CEO of Great on the Job. In a former life, I was an investment banker and a Peace Corps volunteer. And I really (laughs) love teaching people how to communicate. And I also worked at the White House. That's not what anyone wants to hear. That doesn't yeah, work. Are right. you kidding? <laughs> and so the conversation then is right. Hi, Laura. It's so nice to meet you. I'm the CEO and founder of Great on the Job, and I'm passionate about developing leaders. And you say, That's so nice to meet you, Jody. Tell me about this passion. Why are you passionate? How did it happen? And then maybe I go to my backstory. Well, it turns out I was terrible at everything I did, and the only thing I was good at was communicating. The thing I say about storytelling, it, um, What you need to do is be able to sort of pick yourself up and go high level so that people will ask you the question because they want to hear more, right? I often will say I spent five years in the public sector, as opposed to saying I was in the Peace Corps, I was at the EPA, I was a White House intern, and I worked for the governor of Illinois. I will say I was in the public sector, and then people will maybe ask, what did you do in the public sector? Well, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Latin America. And then they say, tell me about that. And then maybe there's a story that comes out of that. So I often find it helpful for people to be able to kind of summarize what they do in a in a pretty easy, digestible way and then have stories at the ready to go into more detail. But you don't necessarily lead with those stories because you don't know if your listeners get interested. We didn't talk about when I when I was interviewing at Goldman Sachs and they said, how can you handle a hundred hour work week? You've never worked you know, in the Peace Corps. Like, how can you handle that? And I said, well, I was on 24 seven for two years. I lived in the middle of town and the town knew what time I went to bed and what time I got up in the morning. Cause they saw my lights go on and off. Like that's a story to then bring to life that I could handle a hundred hour work week. So you have your stories ready as anecdotes. Um, but you don't want to, you don't want to dive into a story with someone until you know that they're actually interested in hearing more.
0: How, how about um, developing credibility when you are in the process of making a big career pivot, and you don't have a lot of experience, sort of directly relevant experience, how about illustrating that credibility when it's credibility in a different field or different sector? Thank you for asking that question. I love that question. And I actually
1: just wrapped with LinkedIn Learning, we filmed two new courses, and one of them is on leveraging your transferable skills. Speaks to exactly that point, which is, I would argue that you are qualified for whatever job you want. You may not have the, on paper, the skills that in theory you need. You may not have the years of relevant experience, but you have transferable skills. We all do. And in today's environment, um, specifically, and in our global economy more generally, We are often pivoting, going into new industries, areas, roles, and we don't always have the relevant experience which says, because I did A, I am now qualified to do B. But what we do have are transferable skills, and those are unique to all of us. Some of us are really calm under pressure. Some of us thrive in high-pressure environments. You might be an excellent writer or really skilled at coding, or you might be like me and be a big-picture thinker and a great communicator. Maybe you're really creative, innovative, you see trends, or you're great at design thinking. It's about knowing what skills you have and then crafting your pitch in a way that is really explicit about what your destination is. Why do you want to do what you want to do? And then what transferable skills do you have that are going to allow you to do a great job in that role? And I will say 100% I, for sure, hire for skills over experience. We can teach skills, especially in large companies that are so good at what they do. They can teach you how to do anything. You need to have the drive, the ambition, the motivation, and, and then you bring your transferable skills to bear so i worry less about quote relevant experience it's all about however positioning yourself in a way that resonates and again just to go back to my investment banking world i really didn't have relevant experience to get hired at goldman sachs as an investment banker but they saw leadership potential in me they saw someone who was a big picture thinker and had started to learn the financial technical skills that she needed And they were willing to sort of take that risk based on this pitch that I had developed that worked. Um, But that I think is, that is not unique to our times, but certainly more challenging than ever right now, given the state of flux in the world.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that will sound like a strange question, but I don't think you'll think it's a strange question. Um, A lot of people don't know what they're good at. They have trouble Dialing in on which of those, which of the pieces are really their most significant or most relevant skills. What's your sort of quick advice for figuring out and knowing if you're having trouble with that? How do you know what you're good at? How do you know which pieces you should I'm going to answer like? that, but I
1: actually thought the question was, how do you know what you are what you want to do, which is also a really good question. Well, that too. Not, yeah, that's but, right, another a big one. Okay, <laughs> how do you know what you're good at? That's such a great question, Laura. Here's the thing. Um, a couple of prompts for you. So number one... Um, you know, what comes naturally and easy to you? What do you do that you don't notice that the time passes or that if someone asks you to do, it doesn't bum you out. You can do it without a lot of sort of brain power. What do you, what comes naturally to you? What do you enjoy doing? What are you happy to do if someone asked you to do it as a favor? It doesn't mean you'd have to get paid for it. Um, what do you like doing? What's fun for you to do? For me, developing new content around brand and networking and communication skills is fun building a financial model, not fun what what um what is energy creating for you versus energy depleting so you are a podcast host and you spend all of your time talking to people and i would imagine in addition to having fabulous communication skills like you do that you probably do enjoy the researching process and learning about potential guests and figuring out good questions and and asking things in a different angle So what creates energy for you versus what is totally depleting? What do you find yourself doing that at the end of the day, you just have no energy left? And then the last prompt I would say is, what do people come to you for advice on? What do your, you know, what do mom, friends, siblings, parents, kids, like, What are you known for as someone? um, Do people come to you with relationship problems because you're really good at talking through issues around relationships? Do people come to you when they want to know where to go for dinner or where to plan their next party? Um, You know, are you the go to for your friend group about all things fashion related? You know, think about those things like, what do you enjoy doing? What do you have fun doing? What is energy creating for you? And what do people come to you for advice on? I would say those are four good prompts.
0: I love that. And then in terms of figuring out what you are sort of meant to do, or what you're, what what you think right. you want to do, maybe answer that part of yeah. The, that the I question. think is that's even harder.
1: And I think a lot of times when people are job searching, networking, thinking about their next move. They start sort of talking to people and socializing the idea without having an idea of what they want to do. And that is actually a lack of generosity on some level. Because if you come to me like, can you help me find a new job? The answer is yes. But what do you want to do and why? And if you've not thought about that, then you're creating a lot of work for me. The destination is the hardest part. And sometimes I say it's about actually just sort of picking something, putting a stake in the ground and then exploring that. Like if you're not sure if you want to go into marketing or sales, maybe you kind of try on both and you create a pitch for marketing and you create a pitch for sales and you talk to some people about it. And by the way, through those conversations of when you're crafting your pitch for a sales role or a marketing role, one of them may actually not feel really authentic to you or maybe more of a struggle. Or maybe once you start talking about it, you realize, you know what, actually, that's not what I want to do. The pitch can be a process for sort of honing in on what you want to do. But I do think it's trial and error. And I think sometimes it's putting a stake in the ground and really sort of going after something and learning like whether or not that really is what you want to do. Um, But that's the hardest thing. And I I think asking yourself questions, you know, why do I want to do this? Am I doing it because it's prestigious or because it sounds great or because it pays well? Like that doesn't last very long. You know, there's got to be the what's like authentically driving you. And
0: um, and that's just a lot of soul searching. For sure. As you think about the clients that you've worked with, men and women, maybe differences that you see between the way that men and women approach both developing the pitch and maybe going after their particular search? Are there differences? I guess I should sort of start with uh, thinking I probably know the answer to that question. but, but, But no, I think it's important because, you know, part of this podcast is developing this awareness of understanding how we oftentimes approach the world in somewhat different ways. And then knowing that there are ways if you're putting obstacles in your path, that there are ways around that. There's tools and tactics. But the first one is just be aware of this possibility. So I'll toss the question to you. Tell me what differences you see in the way that men and women approach these sorts of things. Well, one of the biggest things, I think that one of the biggest detriments, um, to
1: women as it relates to the pitches that we often take ourselves out of the running when we are not 100% qualified for a role. And I'm sure you've seen this data. It was alluded to in Lean In. Jenny Romedy, former CEO of IBM, speaks about it. So if there is a job opening and there are 10 qualifications, men will look at those qualifications. If they have six or more, They're like, dude, I'm the man. I got this. I'm the perfect (laughs) candidate and they apply. Women read that same job description and they say, I don't have all 10. I'm not qualified. So we need to be 100% qualified to throw our hat into the ring. Men need to be 60% qualified. And so one of the things I talk about, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review years ago called Confidence is a Numbers Game, which is encouraging women to round up Assume that you can do something, even if you are not perfectly 100% qualified. Assume that you can learn on the job, even if you haven't done it before. Take a risk and round up. The CEO of SoulCycle grew up at Starwood Hotels, and she talked about the fact that with every new promotion she got, she was never ready for it, but she knew that she could make it if she just kind of took the jump. And I always think about that. Ginny Romney, former CEO of IBM, talks about early in her career, she was offered a promotion and she said to her boss, I need to think about it. And she went home to her husband that night and she relayed the story. And her husband said to her, do you think a man would have answered the question that way? And she said, I walked back in the next day, I took the job. And from there on, I never hesitated when someone offered me a promotion. I took it and then I figured out how to do it. And so I think women, we take ourselves out of the running too early. We don't bet on ourselves. We get nervous, we get afraid, we think we can't do it, and we take ourselves out of the running. And as a personal story, I will share that. I was so great on the job. We do leadership development and communication training. And a Wall Street firm came to us years ago and said, we need a program to retain and develop women. And I said, great. We're the best at that. We can do it. And we built this whole program for them from scratch. And the night before I was flying out to launch the program, I remember my husband looking at me and he said, so do you think it's going to work? And I said, I have no idea, but I'm going to (laughs) try. Right. And like I had sold them on this big, (laughs) huge engagement and it was a huge success, but I didn't know because I had never done it before. And so there is like a lot of, you know, leaps of faith in life. Like, take them we tend to you know surprise ourselves in what we're able to do when we're not doubting and questioning and and worrying and then there's a lot of life hacks to be more confident to go back to an early question you had about where does your confidence come from i should explore that more because i don't know the answer but i know how to be more confident I know about, you know, power posing and I know about having really good eye contact and using your gestures and, you know, getting your endorphins going. And so we can kind of fake it until we make it.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about, because I think this is such a, a specific phenomenon and we sort of, we sort of talked a little bit about it. I'd like to do it slightly deeper divers or sort of talk specifically about this. And this is about women who have left the workforce, like either with COVID or maybe unrelated to COVID, they take a career break, sometimes, you know, three, five years, or maybe, hey, I'm going to take two years off of this track and then get back in. Give your advice for women who want to want to take a break or are taking a break, but also want to get back in and they want to preserve the ability to get back in. What's your advice for sort of how you go about taking that break and then how you position yourself when you're ready to come back if you've truly been out of the workforce for a period of time? You know, that's such a, those those great questions and they're, you know, pretty heady
1: ones. So a few things, one, I'm going to say, um, transparency. I don't think you apologize for leaving the workforce. I think you're very matter of fact about it. I was, I took five years off to raise my children. Done. Not I was really sad. I didn't want to quit my job, but I had to and we couldn't afford, you know, no, like it's there's no apology. And you talk about um, when you're going back in again, you lead with your destination, what you're interested in, what you're hoping to do, what you bring to the table. And then when you talk about your backstory, you can bring in what you've been doing while you weren't working, because let's be honest. Women out of the workforce are still busier than probably half of our male counterparts juggling lives and family and community and volunteerism and community service and all of the things we do to sort of keep our families and the economy running. And so I think it is no less relevant to talk about, you know, managing um The home learning and homeschooling, managing the finances of the family, being the chief budget officer, the chief purchasing officer, the chief, you know, entertainment (laughs) officer, really and truly. Um, And then there's probably other things that, you know, maybe you've been volunteering on the side, maybe you've been doing something for your community church, but finding ways to speak about what you've done that has had impact, that has been important to you, that has driven values. I mean, if you've taken time off to care for an elderly parent, right? Um, right. learning to navigate the healthcare system, learning to navigate health insurance, learning to be empathetic and patient and responsible and reliable. There's so many ways that you can bring whatever you've done while you weren't quote working to light um, when you are coming back to the workforce. So I think it is about looking really critically with a critical eye at what you were spending your time doing and finding out a way to figuring out a way to talk about it that isn't kind of shame ridden, but that is coming from a place mm-hmm. of strength. I made a decision to take care of my family or an elderly p- p- um, parent, or I was laid off due to COVID given the world, the, the, the recession and the economy, like be very matter of fact. But then here's what I did. Here's what I want to do going forward. And here's what I did to get to this point and being really
0: matter of fact about it and not being apologetic. How do you put that in your resume? How do you, yeah. how do you capture those experiences from a resume standpoint? Because it's a heck of a lot easier to talk through it. I don't think you really do. I think the resume, the cover letter is
1: usually where it will be spoken to, right? This is what I'm interested in doing. And this is why I think I'm a great candidate. In your resume, I think you may just have a gap you know, and, and it's, you can't explain that in a resume. So it's okay to apply for a role in 2021. And your last work experience is 2015. And in the cover letter to acknowledge, I have been home taking care of parents, children, kids, community. Here's why I'm returning to the workforce. Here's what I bring to the table. Like, I think you just kind of, you acknowledge it up front So it's not the elephant in the room, but in that your resume, I, I don't, I I don't know that you can speak to it adequately and so I think it re- it's going to require some um some conversation that hopefully if you have a compelling cover letter about the why you want to do something and what you bring to the table it accounts for that gap.
0: Jody, how do you think about the impact that you personally want to have as you sort of look back on your career? I Would say that success is a moving target.
1: And so I think 10 years ago, I would have felt like if I got to where I was today, I would have exceeded my wildest dreams. But sitting where I am today, I feel like I want to be at Davos talking about. Um, workforce solutions and, and um, training young talent and rethinking our model of academics and recognizing that soft skills are equally, if not more important than technical skills. I would love to impact more people and I would love to impact a broader subset of people. I tend to work with a lot of very fancy, high-tech, well-known companies and train their junior talent. And I love that, but I really care deeply about underrepresented um, populations and young people. And I always think about how do I reach a broader audience?
0: I love that. Okay, last question. Um, I ask most people who come on this podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack or a mantra. You've already given us amazing advice, but if you had to boil it down to one thing that you, you're you just constantly reminding yourself of, or maybe it's something that you wish you had known when you were 22-year-old, Jody. What would that be, you know?
1: I think it really does boil down to, and I said this before, that no one cares more about your career than you do. And it's your responsibility to make things happen, but I also think it's completely within your power to make things happen. You can put some intention and awareness behind an idea. You can learn literally anything today for free or almost free. You can self-educate. You can upskill. You can network online with LinkedIn. Like, There's really nothing that's unavailable. Anymore to you, and so put some energy and effort behind trying something new, taking a risk, going after what you're interested in, and make it happen for yourself because no one else will. I love that Thank so you. much.
0: It's great, perfect place to end. Thank you so very much. I really love. You're the conversation. so welcome. I really
1: enjoyed the conversation, and you are so skilled at asking really good, thoughtful, deep questions. So congratulations. I feel like you're doing what you should be doing, Laura.
0: You're kind. You're Thank welcome. You so much. All right, friends. So now you have everything you need to develop the perfect pitch or series of pitches, as the case may be. To learn a bit more about Jodi Glickman, check out the show notes for this episode. I have included links to Great on the Job, her company, as well as Great on the Job, her critically acclaimed book. Whatever your goals and aspirations may be, I think Jodi's perspective on how to think about the perfect pitch works, whether you're developing your own company, moving around inside an existing organization, or potentially making a really dramatic career pivot. So as always, I'd love to know what you thought about this or any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. It's a huge, huge gift to me when you all reach out with your feedback and your perspective and to tell me which parts of these conversations resonated with you. I also love your suggestions for other guests that we should have on She Said, She Said podcast. So be sure to reach out to me. You can contact me via the contact link on the website at She Said, She Said podcast.com. You can also contact me via the various social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan on all of those. So please reach out. Let me know what you're thinking, what's working for you and what questions or problems you're struggling with. I'd really, really love to hear. Until next time, I hope that you found this little investment in you well worth it. Take care of yourself. I'll see you next week. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.